Father, we want to come before you now, sit before you. Lord, as we rely upon your spirit to open your word to us. This word is timeless and it is contemporary. Lord, it's amazing to me just how contemporary your word is dealing with the issues of the day. So, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you'll open up this word to us. Open up our hearts to you. Help us, Lord, to understand and then to apply your word to our lives, that we might be able to live our praises to you before the watching world and even here in this place. We thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I heard a most excellent quote uh, the other day on a Just Thinking podcast. And by the way, uh, these guys are really, really great, Just Thinking, so uh, just mark that down. And the quote is, how seriously do we desire the simplicity of meeting with God on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. I like that. It's great, isn't it? The word that struck me in this quote was simplicity. Now, I remember the first Sunday when we were no longer associated with Family Life Baptist Church. Some of you remember that, don't you? We were meeting in the American Legion building on the first Sunday in October 2011. No technology, if you could believe that. No mics, no screens, nothing. We didn't even have a name. Remember Greg standing up giving announcements and he said, welcome to our church. The only thing we had was a space with Bibles and chairs. We came together in simplicity, in sincerity, to worship the only true and living God, giving him our undivided attention. He's worthy. And we've seen so far in our study in Deuteronomy a certain simplicity as well. Yahweh saved his people, delivering them from their slavery in Egypt by his mighty hand. Out of his holy love for Israel, he said to them, you are my people. He desired to have a love relationship with them. In the giving of Torah, Yahweh spoke many words to Moses describing what love is. As we've seen time and time again, Yahweh love, simple, loyalty to him alone. This is the heart of the matter, isn't it? God's people giving him their whole heart. No room for idols. And as a result, his love fills their heart. And Yahweh love flows two ways from his people. First, they and we love him with all of our hearts, our soul, and our strength. And second, they and we love those in the family of God as ourselves. But a little caveat, you know, Jesus expanded family love to those to include those outside the family and even our enemies. But over time, what began in simplicity has become increasingly more complicated, nuanced. It's become increasingly evident by the attempt of many to find loopholes in God's Torah to get around the simplicity of just hearing and knowing and applying Yahweh love. The life of love is indeed simple. It's a simple concept, but it is impossible to live out utilizing mere human strength. We need the supernatural power of his spirit to live it out. Can I get a witness on that? <laughs> but beginning with Adam and Eve, immediately after their first act of high treason against the king of the universe, We've been insistent to substitute Yahweh love 
for our own understanding of what love is. We have tended to reduce real love to that of radical inclusion and celebration of any thought, any action by anybody. And now the highest form of love, supposedly, is to spare a person of embarrassed or shameful feelings at all costs. Let me give you just one example that's floating around out there. In a Washington Examiner article, her name is Sarah Lopez. She's an abortion activist. She testified in front of the House Oversight Committee this past Wednesday. And she said her abortion was the best decision I ever made, quote unquote. It was an act of self-love, she said. And she went on to say, I'm here today to make sure that everybody who currently needs an abortion, who has had an abortion, or whoever will need an abortion, is not alone, no matter what the state tries to force upon us. No comment. So what is Yahweh love? A simple way of describing it is out of our heartfelt response to the greatness of the king who delivered us, we believe everything he says, and we do everything he commands. That's Yahweh love. How many times did Yahweh and God in the flesh, our Lord Jesus, tell us that love and obedience goes together? Did he not say, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. He also said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So in our passage for today, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse, starting at verse 1 and going all the way to chapter 25, verse 4, we're going to see love all over the place, applied in a number of different ways to those almost exclusively in the family of Israel, specifically regarding issues of marriage and true justice. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on those two issues, and then we're going to summarize the applications in the other areas that this passage talks about. You know, it is amazing to me, and I don't know about you, but it's amazing, the timelessness of God's word regarding the contemporary issues of our day, namely marriage, justice. We're going to see love extended to the poor and needy, and, and then even to placing limitations of punishment on someone who's guilty of a crime. So marriage is the first application of Yahweh love. And so if you don't have your Bibles open, please turn it to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And it has something to do with marriage and divorce and remarriage. In verse 5, we're going to see a picture of the joy and one of the main purposes for marriage. And so verses 1 to 4 begins like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, then if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And that is one sentence in the ESV translation. <laughs> if you're in a scripture memory, do that one. Three verses, one sentence. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. And then in verse 5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out 
with the army or be liable for any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Love that. Isn't that great? In the first scenario, the issue is indecency. This is what the husband saw in his wife to give him a, quote, reason to divorce her. Now, the word translated indecency is obscure, according to the learned guys. They're all over the map on this. But it carries with the idea of something that is very displeasing. It's disgusting. Perhaps a wife could not bear children. Or maybe she committed adultery, but because of the two to three witnesses rule, for he said, she said, did not exist in Israel in those days. He could not prove the infidelity. Well, whatever that indecency was, it was extremely disgusting to him. And so he would write her a certificate of divorce and what we even call today a divorce decree and then send her packing. The scenario continues. Though she was displeasing to her now former husband, at least she had the divorce decree. It served as a protection of sorts for her to let others know that she was now free to be married. She did not commit sexual immorality. Now, how would a potential husband know that she did not commit sexual immorality? Well, she wasn't dead because that was the penalty for adultery. But let's not forget, this is very important here, that a woman back in the day was largely dependent on her husband for survival. It's not like it is today. She did have a dowry, but little else. But many dowries had extreme monetary value. Nevertheless, it was an imperative for her to come under the roof of a provider, of a husband. The certificate of divorce allowed her to remarry, for the decree meant that her marriage was dissolved. Scenario continues. Say that the woman got married again, and the new husband hates her too. He too finds something, quote, indecent in her, and he too sends her packing. Now what is a twice-divorced woman to do? Now God says one thing that cannot happen, that she returned to her former husband. Now, why is this? The first husband, upon hearing that his ex-wife is single again, might want to take her back. And what would come with her return? Her dowry, which again may have been very high in monetary value. And so God says no to that, to at least, in, in some senses, to prevent at least one man from potentially using her for his own advantage. She was not the mere property of her husband, of her former husband. Notice as well how the Lord refers to this potential remarriage. He calls it an abomination. Why? Because she was defiled. It was a sin against her, committed against her. She is not damaged goods, in other words. She's a valuable imager of God. And this is another example of Torah declaring a higher status of women in Israel than we in the 21st century, as we look upon this, that we sometimes assume that the women had when we read scripture. It's much higher status than what we think. But sin becomes entrenched even in the most valuable of human relationships, doesn't it? And that's especially so when skewed religious practices are taken as truth. The so-called sex abuse task force, quote, scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention is the case in point if you're following that. But you know, this is really nothing new. See, in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees tested Jesus over this very issue. And they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And though it was a test question, notice how little the Pharisees seemed 
to value marriage by how they asked the question. Or the question was asked at all. Isn't that amazing that they would ask him that? Who in their right heart would even pose such a question? It makes one think that for them, women in general, let alone wives, were not valuable. It was akin to things that could be gotten rid of for any reason. But what was Jesus' answer? He pointed them back to the beginning, the extreme value and permanency of marriage. And he quoted Genesis 2.24. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh. And then he told them, what God joined together, let no man separate. Then he went on to say that the certificate of divorce that we're talking about today was a concession given by Moses due to human sinfulness, due to the hardness of human hearts. Marriage was to be permanent and viewed as extremely valuable, even if a husband experiences something, quote, indecent in his wife. Remember last week we talked about vows and those who attend weddings. Most of us all have attended at least one wedding. What do we hear when the bride and groom say to one another the vast majority of the time when it comes to time to make their vows to one another in the sight of the Lord who intently is listening? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, etc. Remember, it is better to not vow than to vow and not pay. For those of us who have married for any length of time, we can multiply the stories, can't we, of where we've been faithful to our wife, to our husband, even in the most unpleasant circumstances. I see Kitty smiling back here really big. Even the most unpleasant circumstances with the vows in our minds, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death do we part in sickness and in health. Now, in verse 5, we have a case of a brand new marriage. The newlywed couple are to enjoy themselves for a full year. And the husband is exempt from public obligations, such as military service, to literally make happy his wife. They're to get the marriage started right. And how gracious of a command is this? This is in the law of God. Now, all of us who've been married for a while, and those who are liable to be married at some point in the future, listen up. So exhilarating, amazing, and so many other wonderful adjectives we can use. The first year is almost always the hardest year in marriage. Can I get a witness? Major adjustments need to be made, like learning how to fight fair. Learn how to do that yet? Or how to really forgive, or how to compromise. I believe it was Dobson, James Dobson, who said that we need to go into marriage with our eyes wide open than half closed thereafter. So the Torah celebrates marriage as getting off onto the right foot. Isn't that great? But part of the rationale for a one-year public exemption is so that the couple can begin to fulfill the first command God gave to our first parent. Make babies. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. And you know, as you read the scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, I find it very instructive that God's command in this regard comes before the comment that he made that he would create a companion for Adam because of his loneliness. However, in our current climate, we have it backwards, don't we? Companionship is far and away the most important thing in marriage today, with many a so-called marriage. See, love is love. 
is a loud siren song in our culture that it uses to attempt to remove the stigma from a so-called homosexual marriage, somehow making it more acceptable. In God's eyes, in the eyes of every true Christian, homosexual marriage is a mirage. It does not exist. But the culture demands that we accept this kind of, quote, marriage, lest all the naysayers be accused of hating people. Producing children in obedience to God's command takes a back seat to companionship in the life of so many couples, if it is considered at all. And with homosexual couples, it is impossible for them, isn't it? We follow the science. It's impossible for them as a couple to produce children. But tragically, we live in a fallen world, don't we? Why is it that many husbands and wives who greatly desire to have children are barren, while many others could have many children, but they choose not to? They're committed to not have any kids. Either way, it's sin. Now, in the first instance, sin is the fact that we live in a fallen world, and to varying degrees, we're all affected. With some, that includes barrenness. It's not the fall of the husband or wife. It's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. Now, we all know how the medical community diagnoses the condition, disease, infertility, and so much more are the painful reminders that our first parents opened the door of sin and death through their disobedience to Yahweh. On the other hand, it may be a sinful disposition. Doubtless, there are husbands and wives who hold to a commitment to, I'm just too selfish to have kids. And for all husbands and wives who are in that frame of mind and heart, my advice to them is, grow up. God said marriage is for enjoyment for one another, and just as importantly, to produce children, produce image bearers of God and potential worshipers of him. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 tells us about the blessings of kids. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver full of them. God's word says that children are his blessing. If we don't consider children to be the Lord's blessing as he says they are, then we need to reconsider what God's blessing means. Again, what is Yahweh love? Out of gratitude for his greatness, for his deliverance of us, we are to believe everything he says and to do everything he commands. Amen. As I mentioned a bit earlier, we're going to talk about two applications of Yahweh love, and marriage was the first. So now I want to turn the corner and talk about justice. Now, if you remember, several weeks ago, we talked about justice in Deuteronomy 16. Justice, only justice you will follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, in this context of Deuteronomy 16, the issue is to treat everybody fairly, showing no partiality when it comes to legal matters. Now, part of what that means is that judges and officers are to refuse bribes. See, that ought to be obvious. It's common sense. You know, justice is blind, isn't it? Or at least it ought to be. A person guilty of a crime is guilty regardless of how much the guilty person is worth, whether in wealth or influence that he or she has in the community. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 18, we're going to encounter the issue of justice again. Starting in verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. 
you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or the fathers or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now I see in this part of scripture what amounts to a remedy for the lurching of our culture toward Marxism and tragically for many in the church. I mentioned earlier how amazed I am at regarding how timeless God's word is in our contemporary issues. So let's look first at the acts regarding oppression as Moses outlines them. Let me point out two here, two acts. The first oppressive act is employers withholding wages legitimately due their employees. Second, refusing to treat the sojourner or orphan in the same way everybody else is to be treated to include making life miserable for those in hard times. Taking a garment of a poor widow is an example of this. But notice what's going on in verse 14. An employer refuses to pay his hired poor and needy workers at the end of the day. They put in a full day's work, and they they want their money. They expect it. But for some reason, their employer withholds what is due them. And how cruel is that? What can the poor and needy person do with this? Can they call HR? Can they have a strike? Of course not. The employer pulled a sick bait and switch and used his employees for his own advantage. That is called oppression. Second issue has to do with those who refuse to meet the needs of the sojourner and the orphan as Moses shines his spotlight on them. Yahweh through Moses mentioned a widow's garment being taken in pledge. Now, what is that all about? This simply means that a widow asked for a loan from a member of the family in Israel. And that garment would be the collateral that she would use to, as a promise to pay back what she owed. Like withholding the wages of those who are legitimately owed, how cruel can it be to actually take the garment of a poor widow? That's all she has. Well, Mr. Lender, are you afraid that she might somehow take advantage of you, you who loan her barely enough to make ends meet? I've got an idea for you, Mr. Lender. Why not just give her what she needs as a gift instead of taking her garment? This, my brothers and sisters, is real oppression. People in positions of power actively, presently, and persistently taking advantage of the vulnerable because they can. What does Yahweh say? Treat every person as the valuable imager of God that they are, whether the imager is the lender or the borrower, whether the imager is in a position of economic or political power or no power at all. No one gets special treatment. All are equal at the foot of the throne of God, regardless of status in society, regardless of social economic influence. The guilty are that way because of what they've said and what they've done. The innocent are that way because they've broken no law or statute. Full stop. Now today, it's no secret that our culture highlights oppressors and the oppressed. But it bears absolutely no resemblance to what the Lord outlined in this section of Scripture or anywhere in the book of the law. 
It is an evil fantasy, is what the world is spinning. To say that certain persons oppress another certain group of people just because the Lord created him or her with a certain shade of melanin is a lie. To say that images of God who belong to a certain ethnicity have special privileges simply because they are members of the ethnicity is a lie. To say the economic foundation upon which this nation has been built must be torn down because it reflects systemic racism is a lie. With that said, we're not to excuse individuals who in their pride believe that they're better than others. For there are many who fit in that category. But it is on the individual level here, not on the class level. If these individuals claim to be followers of Christ, they need to repent of their sin. Pronto. As we're discovering on Wednesday night, James. James took the entire assembly to task because people in the congregation showed economic favoritism. Two people walk into the assembly, one in rags and the other one in great riches. And some of the assembly gave the riches guy special treatment. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, James called that sin. James 2.9 tells us, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. What we have now in our culture is manufactured partiality on steroids. The narrative is white males oppress everybody. They show favoritism to themselves and they design culture to keep their power. Something must be done. And that something is justice. And now there's a whole new vocabulary attached to this. And we know this, don't we? And the banner is being woke. When one is woke, then they become awakened to the systemic racism that exists all around them. And now, having been woke, they are now to actively tear down everything that lends itself to a so-called dominant or white European culture, such things as the traditional family, including God-ordained marriage. Former slaves need to receive reparations to make up for the loss of ancestral financial power. What used to be male-female certainties are no more. History is to be erased. All reminders of our heritage are to be thrown out like so much garbage. That's what's going on today. And what both worldly culture and tragically in increasing measure the church have in common is that the biblical word justice has been stripped and emptied of its divine meaning and has been filled with their own descriptors. Racial justice, economic justice, social justice, reproductive justice. Each of these forms of justice and more mean what the culture says it means. And all of it is rooted and grounded in God-hating Marxist worldview. But in the realm of Yahweh love, true justice means that all are treated equally according to the Torah, according to the standards set out by Yahweh. However, since we've turned our back as a culture, our collective back on the ways of Yahweh and his word, we will never achieve true justice in this life. Unless God pours out a revival. I mentioned earlier that there is a cure for the oppressed slash oppressor culture, and it's found in this section of Scripture. Let's read verse 18 again. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
So how in the world can this be a cure? In a phrase, lived experience. And I see two things here. First, Moses told them that they were to remember where they came from. They were slaves. And to say that they were horribly mistreated is a vast understatement. They were never to forget that they were under the lash, treated like animated tools, animals that were driven all their lives for many generations. They felt the pain. That's the negative. Now the positive. They were to never forget that they were redeemed from that awful experience. They were set free. And what an incredible history. What an incredible story. Not because of their slavery, but because Yahweh gloriously redeemed them. Yahweh's redemption was what they were to center their lives around. Because they knew this in their history, they were to take their lived experience, they were to bask in their deliverance, and out of gratitude for what the Lord did, treat others with Yahweh love. But the problem in our day with the woke crowd is they don't focus on their deliverance in Christ. The non-Christian certainly doesn't. He hasn't been delivered. And the one who claims to be a Christian believes that he or she must listen to the lived experience of the one who claims to be oppressed, take that as truth, and then join them in their plight. And to the degree that a Christian does this is the degree that a Christian believes and lives a false gospel. The truth is every person either is or was enslaved by sin. And God, by his mighty hand, sent his son to be our deliverer. He hung on the cross, bearing every sin of every person who ever lived. Listen again to the incredible words of the Apostle John, the Apostle of love in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's Jesus. And not for our sins only as Christians, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what this means, my dear brothers and sisters, is that every perceived or actual injustice by anyone who's ever done to you or me has been placed on Christ when he was on the cross. He died in our place. I remember David Platt saying one time, he stood where we belong. It's a true statement. So what this means is two things. First, everybody has a lived experience. And much of our story consists of pain. We've hurt ourselves. We've inflicted pain on others. Others have inflicted pain on us. In other words, pain is our common lot in life. And though we all share common pain, our individual experiences are unique. And so we can listen to one another as we gain empathy in their lives and their stories. Now, whether that's Christian or those outside the family. The second thing is, we who are in Christ, we share a common lived experience. It's Yahweh love. It is the love that Yahweh showed by sending Jesus to the cross to pay for our sins. By his mighty hand, he delivered us from sin's slavery. And it is that experience we all need to live in? You know, certainly, we've all been hurt. People have hurt us, and we've hurt other people, other images of God. But we all have hurt Jesus in humility. Let's tell one another of our lived experience of the Savior, God in the flesh, King of the cosmos. 
And so now for the remaining time in God's word here, let me briefly touch on these other areas where the family of God is supply Yahweh love. In verses 6 and 10 to 13, we have an application of love regarding the pledge. I mentioned that pledge is what we call collateral, a tangible promise to repay a loan. All of us, at least who have had a little bit of life experience, know what this is all about, don't we? How many of us own our own homes? Unless it's completely paid off, none of us do. I know Kathy does. Her home's paid off. The bank owns it. Now, in these verses, the collateral is a lot more immediate. It consists of the individual things that the borrower owns. And there are three rules here limiting the collateral. First, the lender could not take the mill that the borrower owns for obvious reasons. How could they mill their grain so they can eat their bread? Second, the lender could not enter the borrower's house to pick out what he wanted for collateral. Basic respect for the person and the person's property is the application of love here. And third, very poor persons probably only own one thing, the cloak that they wrap themselves up in at night. And so the lender was to give that back at the end of the day so he could sleep in it. And the lesson here is to treat the one who is poor with dignity and respect. The poor and needy are equal to the lender. It's just that the poor and needy don't have any money. In verse 7, the issue of kidnapping and then selling that person as a slave is highlighted here. And why Moses had to command that is a mystery to me. One is definitely not showing Yahweh love then that way. Verses 9 and 10, the word is leprosy. But it covers any kind of communicable disease. And we're very familiar with these kinds of things nowadays, aren't we? See, Moses outlined in Leviticus chapters 13 to 14 what to do. Here Moses lays out a blow-by-blow of how to treat symptoms of whatever the communicable disease person has. Because they and we live in a fallen world, disease is with us. And the rule is simply this. If you're sick and show symptoms, separate yourself. See, it's good common sense. Application of Yahweh love here. Nothing of Kathy in her upcoming bone marrow transplant. We all know that once she gets this, she can be very, very vulnerable. And if she catches anything, what happens? She goes see Jesus. I want her to be around for quite a while, don't you? And so when I see her, I'm going to gladly wear my mask. Now, verse 19 to 22, Moses tells the people to provide for the poor from their own bounty. In the field, the owner is not to take every last piece of fruitfulness from his field, from his harvest. And out of, out of gratitude for how the Lord blessed them, they are to leave some for others. The Lord provides the owner of the field as well as for the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. They can come and glean. And this accomplishes two things. First, the owner of the field provides the food that the Lord blessed them with. And second, sojourner, the widow, and the orphan actually have to work to obtain it. See, this is not a handout. They work for their food. And what that does, it keeps their dignity intact. Everybody wins here, and Yahweh is glorified. And finally, in verses 25, 1 to 3, there's an application of Yahweh love. It has to do with limitation of punishment. Forty lashes for those who deserve the whip. This limitation of punishment prevents the person who's administering the lash from seeing this person that they're whipping as less than human. The prophet Habakkuk offered this prayer to the Lord when he came to his judgment on God's people. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. That's the idea here. Though the person did wrong, 
He is not an animal. Treat him with as much dignity as possible, even while meeting out the punishment. And even work animals are to be treated, in verse 4, treated well. He says, don't muzzle the ox. Let the ox eat while it's working for you. And so as I land this plane today, what can we walk away with here? Yahweh love is the best thing in the world, isn't it? His is a holy love. It is completely different from the weak, fickle love that naturally resides in us. His love is unspeakable, given the fact that the Lord is omniscient. He knows all things, including the deepest parts of our hearts, places that we would not go even if we could. In those places reside the most despicable things about us that would cause us to spare if ever brought out to the light. But wonder of wonders, Yahweh knows it all. And he offers his love to us even though he knows all of it and then some. And I've said this before and I've heard it before and I want to pass it on to you again and again. See, the Lord knew exactly what he was getting when he saved you. And me. God will never say, oh, I didn't know you were capable of that. See, he knew what he was getting. And this ought to make us fall on our faces in awe and wonder. And say along with the disciples when they witnessed him calming the storm, just who is this one? The depth of his love is truly amazing and infinite. His love is marvelous because it is all-powerful. His stubborn love easily overcomes and overwhelms all of my protests, all of my laziness, all of my desires to do my own thing. And the fact is, I am his son, and he's my heavenly father. In Christ, you are his child, and he is your father. Most gladly will I cling to the confidence that Paul exuded when he penned Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on a completion until the day of Christ. Let's pray. Yahweh, what a magnificent God you are. Your love is unspeakable. We, we can't get our minds, our hearts around this. The gifts of life, creation, what you have given is truly amazing. Lord, the love that you poured out into our hearts and what you want of us is to return that love to you and to, and to give that love to others. Lord, you've called us to follow you in a loyal way. Lord, we can never be perfect and you know that and so you've never expected perfection from us, but you have expected loyalty. Lord, you tell us in your word that the righteous person falls seven times and gets up Lord, help us to be the righteous people in our lifestyle. Lord, that even when we fall, that we will get up. Lord, you've made provision for us in your word that when we sin, that we confess our sins, we repent. And as we do, as we agree with you, then Lord, you will forgive us and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, we really have no excuse not to live the life that you've called us to live. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Help us, please. In the, especially in the areas of marriage, the permanency of that, help us to enjoy our husbands or wives. In the area of justice, Lord, may we proclaim it loud and proud that you, Lord, desire for us to treat every person equally 
Lord, this whole thing about all these all these worldly aspects and ideas of justice, Lord, that's just garbage. Lord, what you want is true justice. Help us as your people to exercise that. And then the world will be able to know what justice really looks like. And Father, so many other areas that we talked about today, about how we can apply your love to these to these things. Lord, help us to treat one another with dignity and respect, because Lord, you do that. Even as we talked about today, Lord, you give us choices of whether to follow you or not. So Lord, I pray that you help us to truly love you and truly serve you because we love you, because you've loved us first. And I pray now, Lord, as we uh, turn our attention to our giving and also to our singing, help us, Lord, to take these acts of worship and truly make them acts of worship from our hearts because you alone are worthy and you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray.